We're going to be reading together from Hebrews chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up. uh, And you can read there for yourself. The words will be on the screen. uh, But I'd always encourage you to read from the Bible if you've got one with you. Uh, The way we're going to do this, we're going to read the whole of chapter 2 together. And then we're going to dive in from verse 5 onwards. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go. Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word We just ask that you would open our eyes to see what you would want to show us through your word this afternoon. We ask that you would open our ears to hear what you would want to speak to us through your word this afternoon. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that are receptive to what you would want to do in our lives and hearts this afternoon. Lord, we pray would your word take root and bear fruit in our lives. But for your glory, for the good of those around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Good. Well, there's a lot in there, and as I say, we're mainly going to focus from, from verse 5 onwards, uh, but just by way of introduction, we've, we've been warned at the start of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, not to neglect such a great salvation as we have on offer in the person and work of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews goes on then in, in the rest of this chapter to begin to unpack something of that salvation a bit more. At the start of chapter 2, if you remember from last week, for those of you who were here, we find that we avoid drifting away from God by paying attention to what we have heard in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We avoid drifting away from God by paying attention to Christ, by fixing our eyes on him, by considering him, by delighting in him. And now, in the rest of this chapter, we're going to learn more about the nature of the the good news that Jesus proclaimed and that God verified through signs, wonders, and miracles. And the first thing that we learn as we read from verse 5 is that it is a salvation that pertains to the world to come. It is not primarily and certainly not solely about what happens here and now. We read from verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The writer to the Hebrews opens this part of the book now by quoting from Psalm 8. And and some of you, it might bother you, the fact that he says... It has been testified somewhere, like very vaguely, as though he's kind of not sure where. He's like, I don't know, like somewhere in our scriptures, like it was, you know, it's there somewhere. Like, it's not that he doesn't know. (laughs) And actually, it's not that it's not significant or important. It's not because he can't remember. It's because he wants us to focus on what's being said by God, not when or where it's found in the Old Testament. But it's from Psalm 8. And it's actually about people and the place people have in God's creation and in God's plans. It's a remarkable psalm, actually. What is man that you're mindful of him? I think when we consider the glory of God, the one who created all things, actually in the context of the the book of Hebrews, if you read chapter 1 and you just have this constant, like, Jesus is amazing. (laughs) Like he created everything. He's sustaining all things. He's better than angels. In fact, the angels worship him. Everything worships him. He's amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. And then we get this passage from Psalm 8 that in the light of that says, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. This is an amazing verse of Old Testament scripture about the fact that God is mindful of us, that he cares for us, that the mighty king and creator of all things cares for you. 
He is mindful of you. He is aware of what is going on for you right now. And there's a promise here too, that whilst we are now for a while lower than the angels, they're in heaven ministering to God and we're not, in him we are and we will be, and we will be crowned with glory. And this is an interesting promise. You kind of think, where's this going? Because it says, actually, that all things will be put in subjection under our feet. You think, okay, this is interesting. In other words, you and I, if you're a Christian, will have dominion over creation. Now, that might sound to you like, oh, we're going to rule over creation. We're going to reign in some sense. Yes, that's part of the promise for those who are in Christ. Actually, that one day we will reign with him. You, could, you can look excited about that, because I think that's a really amazing promise, actually, that those who are in Christ will one day be crowned with glory and will exercise dominion over creation. I think that's quite cool. In fact, there are some other slightly more weird, when you go elsewhere in the New Testament, things like, we'll judge the angels. And you think, okay, that's interesting. But this amazing promise is actually how it was always supposed to be. You see, when we look back at Genesis 1 in the beginning, when God created mankind and proclaimed that it was very good, he actually commissioned humans to rule over creation, to have dominion over creation. But because of the fall, we don't currently see or experience that. And the writer to Hebrews notes that, doesn't he? He notes that we don't currently see that reality. If we read on, what does he say? At present, from verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He's like, we don't experience that reality right now. And about you, are you exercising dominion over creation? My guess is not. We're not. And in some senses, actually, in this fallen world, in some senses... It exercises dominion over us. Things are twisted upside down because of the fall. We're subject to sickness and suffering and pain and ultimately death. My guess is that's your experience. Anyone ever not experienced sickness? Suffering of some form. Death. We just... So how does this work then? If, if this is in God's word, and we think, okay, that's, that's what's going to happen. It's Psalm 8, the writer to the Hebrews quotes it here. What's going on? How's it going to happen? When? Well, we read on. We don't exercise dominion right now, but... We read from verse 9, the focus changes now to Jesus. But we see him, 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The gear shifts, the focus becomes Jesus. We don't see the reality of us ruling, but we see him. Jesus Christ, who joined us in our humanity. The writer gives us a new lens to read Psalm 8. Now, it's not just about mankind. It's about Jesus. We, we put on new, like, you remember in chapter 1, we, we said the writer to the Hebrews is going to quote the Old Testament over and over and over again. And as he does, he's going to help us view Old Testament scripture Christologically or, or through the lens of the finished work of Jesus. And we're going to read verses like that from Psalm 8 and we're going to understand them in a new way because of Jesus. And he helps us to see now that it is about us, but crucially it's also about Jesus who became one of us. The title Jesus most used of himself in his earthly ministry recorded in the Gospels is Son of Man. He identified with us. He was, for a little while, made lower than the angels. Just like let that sink in a minute. The one who created all things and sustains all things. The one who we read in, in chapter 1 is worshipped by the angels. All God's angels worship him. Was made for a while lower than the angels. And now, as we've already read, he is crowned with glory and honor. And he's crowned with glory and honor. There's some strange concepts going on here because of the suffering of death. That by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is like what's going on here. He was crowned with glory because of suffering. Death, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, some people have kind of read that word taste, a very English way of reading it, and thought, oh, okay, so Jesus just kind of sampled it. <laughs> like, and, and then people start to think, oh, maybe it wasn't that he like, really physically died, but there was kind of some, maybe like he just like swooned or something, and like, that's not what's being said here. It's not just that he had a nibble. He fully experienced death. He consumed death. He partook of it fully on behalf of his people, on behalf of you. He who is worshipped by the angels was made lower than the angels, experienced suffering and died on behalf of his people. See the picture that's beginning to build here. Psalm 8's about us, and it's about Jesus, who became like us, for a reason, that he might taste death on our behalf. 
Let's carry on, because the writer continues to flesh this out for us. From verse 10, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What's going on? Well, the first thing we read as the writer continues to unpack it is that we learn that all things were made for God, by God, for his glory. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, all things exist for God. All of creation is for him, for his glory. And he is bringing, or has brought, many sons to glory. If you can tune out from the noise of the children worshipping the walls of Jerusalem as it's been rebuilt. They're, they're learning about Nehemiah up there, and it sounds like they're having an absolute blast. Um, <laughs> but let's try and uh, kind of focus on Hebrews 2 together. See, the, the God who made all things, and, and all things were made for his glory, is bringing or has brought many sons to glory. Who? Who are these sons and how has that occurred? Well, they're those who trust in Jesus, those who are in Christ. This is the salvation, the great salvation that we're told not to neglect. Psalm 8, we will rule with him. There's, there's this sense in which we're being brought to glory to a point where actually we rule with Christ. It's extraordinary. Jesus, in some sense here in these verses, is, is being pictured as the pioneer, the firstborn over all creation, as we read elsewhere, the firstborn from among the dead, the forerunner, a man who, who was made lower than the angels. He, he took on humanity. A man is now seated in glory, as a promise and a sign that those who are in him will one day join him and be crowned with glory and honor. Amazing, right? But what do we read here? It was fitting. It was fitting. It was somehow right, appropriate, necessary, that the process by which God would bring many sons to glory, that you and I would be brought to glory, involved making the founder of our faith, that is Jesus, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. There's an interesting concept that the writer to Hebrews starts to unpack here. He it says it's, it's fitting that in bringing humans to glory, into relationship with God, into eternal covenant relationship with God, that the founder of their faith or the forerunner or the one who would make it possible would be made perfect through suffering. You think, okay, made perfect is, is a slightly frustrating phrase here. Because it sounds like Jesus 
was in some way morally deficient and that he needed to be improved upon by suffering. And you think, how? Like, how? What? Well, we know from the rest of Scripture that that is not the case. (laughs) Jesus was and is and always will be holy, perfect, spotless, blameless. And so qualified might be a more helpful English word there for us to understand what's being said, which is that in order to bring us to the Father, in order to bring many sons to glory, the one who is rightly worshipped by angels had to join us in being made lower than the angels, which he willingly did. He needed to enter into a full experience of humanity and experience suffering and to endure it without sin. That he would be qualified to pay the price for our sin. You see, Jesus' moral perfection was not in question, but in some sense it was also not tested. Part of what qualified him to pay the price for our sins at the cross was the fact that he endured suffering without sin. That he lived as a man and he endured suffering without sin. See, if he had glided through life with no suffering, he would not be qualified. That's that's what we learn here. Firstly, suffering is a product of sin, a product of the fall. And it's part of the experience of living in a fallen world. And secondly, what do we generally do in response to suffering? Any thoughts? How do you generally respond to suffering? Do you at peace with it? Do you rejoice through it? Do you thank God in it? I want to suggest that very often our response to suffering is to sin, actually. Often. We grumble and complain when things don't go our way or when we experience suffering. Well, that's sin. Because we're told in Scripture, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Ah, okay, we instantly have a problem. (laughs) We blame God. We envy others who aren't in the same position as us. We begin to place our hope in things other than God. We start to look for and grasp at things that we think will solve the problem. Or in some sense, save us in some way from our suffering. We all sin when we suffer, every one of us. And, and your, your threshold may be different. Like just being real for a moment, for some of you, mild inconvenience is enough. Like it just is. <laughs> like someone cuts you up. That's enough when you're driving <laughs> for you to sin. Like, like I'm just, we can be real. For some of you, your threshold's a bit higher. But there is a point for all of us where when faced with suffering, our response is less than holy, less than perfect. Well, how about Jesus, the eternal son who had enjoyed 
perfect community, Father, Son, and Spirit, for all eternity past. Like, how about the Son, who'd never experienced suffering, becoming human? He took on the, the real potential for pain, which is part of our experience as humans, isn't it? As he grew and he learned through childhood into being a teenager, into adulthood, his experience was like yours. He experienced pain, pressure, rejection, like trials, loss of loved ones. We see him grieve at the loss of dear friends and family. Like Joseph died. He lost his earthly father, had to go through that grieving process. His best friend, Lazarus, died. I mean, he rose him to life again, but he died. He went through that grieving process. And how did he do? In suffering and rejection and loss and heartache and pain and testing. How did he do? He responded in perfect obedience and submission to his heavenly father. He didn't sin. Not once. I mean, that is breathtaking, isn't it? Like, just think about it for a minute. Like, I can't drive somewhere and be cut up without sinning. And yet Jesus lived every moment, took on incredible depths of suffering and did not once sin. And being perfect, he was qualified to go to the cross as the sinless one who would bear the punishment for all the sins of those who would put their trust in him. It's amazing, isn't it? This is staggering. What a saviour. Jesus is, is the better substitute, the better one to stand in our place, our champion. And we read on, what's more, from verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's going on here? He, that is Jesus, the one who sanctifies you, if you trust in him, or who are being made right with God, have one source. It's a strange phrase. That is to say he was born of a woman. He became fully human. And fully human, he was not ashamed and he is not ashamed to call you brothers. Amazing. 
Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Christ, the glorious, radiant King of glory, is not ashamed to call you brother if you hope in him. If you are a Christian, you have a brother in Christ Jesus. He's Lord, yes, and we worship him as such. He's sovereign, yes, and we worship him as such. He's worshipped by the angels, he's eternal, he's all-powerful, he's not like you, and yet at the same time he became like you. And he calls you brother, family, kin. This is mind-blowing. It was essential in God's salvation plan that Christ became fully man, shared wholly in humanity, entered completely into human experience so that he could go to the cross as our representative, a sinless human, to pay the price for the sins of mankind. We have the best big brother ever. We have the best big brother ever. And now through him we no longer live in the slavery of fear of death. Because death is not the final word. Christ is. He's victorious. And so all who hope in him will be victorious over death. He's our champion. He's overcome sin on our behalf. We live now in the good of his victory. And we benefit now from his perfect obedience. And the writer carries on as if that weren't enough. We read from verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our brother has taken on the bullies of sin and death and suffering, and he has defeated them once and for all. When you feel like you're standing in the shadow of those things. Know that you have a brother who has conquered them, who has dealt with them once and for all. And he helps us now. That's what these verses tell us. When you suffer, he is with you. Not in some abstract way, but he has experienced suffering, like the most profound suffering. Whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, Christ has endured it. Not only does he know what it's like, he did it without sin. (laughs) 
which means he succeeded where we fail. And instead of condemnation or lording it over us, see, that's not what he does. He doesn't go, ah, you screwed up again. Not me. I did it perfectly. That that is the opposite of our brother. No. Instead of lording it over you or bringing condemnation, he extends forgiveness and says, let me help you with that. Isn't that amazing? When you face temptation, know that you don't have to do it alone. And you don't have to give in to it. You know, it's not inevitable that you give in to temptation when you're tempted. He's there to help you. We can come to him. See, when you're tempted, it tells us here, he himself suffered when tempted, is able to help those who are being tempted. See, when you are tempted to sin through suffering, through circumstance, or just through your own stupidity. Christ is there. And he is able to help you. He's willing to help you. See, if when you're tempted to sin, instead of just stepping on in, you actually look to Christ and say, Lord, would you help me in this moment? I guarantee you're going to sin a lot less. And even when you fail, we have one who extends forgiveness, who is rich in mercy, abounding in love, full of compassion. He says, it's okay. I forgive you. I, I bore up under that and paid the price so that there is no price for you left to pay I did it on your behalf my perfect record I'm giving it to you as though it were yours I'm the better substitute I went there on your behalf amazing isn't it there's I kind of to begin with I was going to call this a better substitute. Which sometimes I think we, we, we kind of struggle a bit with that phraseology or we think, like, what does that mean and what's that about? But we don't have any problem as humans instinctively getting behind a champion and identifying with them. Yeah? Think about sports. Like if you're into football, when your team's going through stuff, how do you talk about it? You say we and us. You didn't get on the field. You didn't do anything. Oh, yeah, we beat them 3 0. It's like, you didn't. They did. Yeah? You, you, but you have no problem doing that. The writer to the Hebrews and scripture wants us to, to grasp that in a much more profound way with Jesus. That what's true of him is true of you. You didn't do it. He did. But in the same way, you're happy to say, 
we won. We can say that in Jesus. That's, that's true of you. And it means that what's true of him in Psalm 8, that he who was made for a while lower than the angels is crowned with glory and has dominion over all things, will also gloriously be true of those who hope in him. That what's true of him is true of you. So we could say this about Jesus. He's a better substitute. We could say he's a better champion. And so this is a kind of pick-your-own-title sermon. But I actually want to say he's a better brother. Because he isn't just our champion. He isn't just our substitute. He isn't just our hero. But he so identifies with you that he's not ashamed to call you brother, to welcome you into his family. So that just as he is in perfect relationship with his Father in heaven, as a result of his finished work, he's brought many sons to glory. We also get to enjoy that relationship for eternity. So how do we respond? Well, we're going to come to communion in a moment, and I want to encourage you to respond in a few different ways. To firstly acknowledge whatever it is that you're being tempted with right now. And maybe you just know, like, there's, there's something that comes up over and over again for you. Bring it to him. He won't be put off or turned away. He's here to help you when you're tempted. Where you've fallen into sin, come to him. And know that he's paid the price for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when you face suffering, maybe some of you feel that you're facing a degree of suffering right now. Find comfort in him. The one who suffered on your behalf. So that he could identify with you but also so that he might be qualified to bring you to glory where there will be no sickness, no suffering, no shame, no death. And remember now that he is crowned with glory, the first of many brothers. We have an eternal hope, which makes a difference when we experience suffering, right? To know that this isn't it. This isn't how it's going to be forever. We won't always live like this. There's a day coming when he's going to return in glory. He's going to take our time. And we'll be with him forever. It's a great hope, isn't it? That you who for a while have been made lower than the angels because of him will be crowned with glory. Stunning, right? 
I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to come to the table.